I'm Dave Baker. I'm Andrew Price. And I'm here for the snacks. No, my name is Dan Berger. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Buckaroo Bonsai. Who is Buckaroo Bonsai? Well, he's the star of a would-be franchise launcher and cult film, Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. The film, for the uninitiated, is a brilliantly deadpan and metatextually hilarious ripoff of old pulp novels and classic pulp adventurers. But we'll get to that. Aside from the brilliantly crafted screenplay, the film is filled with loads of iconic characters, amazing costumes, visionary direction, and some kind of strange racial elements, which we'll also get into. However, it's a classic for a reason. There's never been a movie like it, and there probably never will be again. Largely because of the creative contributions of two men, the director, W.D. Rick Richter, and the screenwriter, Earl Mac Rausch. No, the joke is that it's structured poorly, which is on purpose, so it's actually structured very well, thank you very much. Buckaroo Banzai is a film that exists in our dimension, yet feels like something completely separate, almost like it fell from a spaceship from another dimension. It's a film that's so dense and compact with ideas, and yet completely halting and stutter-stepping in its pacing that it, it, it kind of feels like its own complete story, sort of? Almost like the film is a sequel to a franchise that never existed, which is basically exactly what Earl MacRouch and W.D. Richter were attempting to do with the film. To construct a franchise that everyone had just forgotten about, to pretend like they were a successful mid-budget live-action sequel to a big-budget pulp novel adaptation from a few years prior. They both succeeded and failed in that goal, but we'll get into that later. In many ways, Buckaroo Banzai is a Schrodinger's franchise. It both is and is not a film franchise. It almost makes you think of the Duchampian paradigm, where it's Mac and Rick, and they decided to walk into a movie theater and point at a poster and say, This is now our movie, and it's a sequel, and it will become the Bible for a small group of people somewhere on the internet. But... We're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, Dan, thank you for coming and talking to us about Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, for those who are uninitiated, what is your connection to Buckaroo Banzai? Um, I would say an avid enthusiast. Uh, I was, it's a long story getting into it. And I, you know, I don't know if we, it, now's the time to say that story. Uh, but really my entry into the series and into the fandom was when the movie was released back in 1984 as uh, as a high school kid in uh, Winneka, Illinois. Uh, I saw it in October early, it was an Indian summer because I remember it being warm. And uh, I remember being really confused by it. I was not blown away. I was actually not what you would call an instant fan, but, but... I remember being incredibly intrigued by it and knowing that there was something there that I wasn't quite getting and wanting to revisit it. And I think that there's a lot of people who have that experience. And so that was my entry. And uh, turns out it's not uncommon. Did you just watermelon scene us? <laughs> 
that's a long story. Uh, we'll maybe maybe we don't get into that. We'll get into that later. And then you just moved on. <laughs> the real the thing I was looking for is what is World Watch One and what is your connection to it? Oh, World Watch One. I'm sorry. That's a, <laughs> okay. World Watch One was something that back in 2003 basically was it wasn't even a brainchild. I was hanging out on uh, oh, what is it? Uh, World Watch Online. It was an email list. And uh, I was a, a new father, a stay-at-home father at the time. Well, not new at that point, but we had a, another one at the time. So it was new all over again. And uh, being a stay-at-home parent, you quickly realize with two very young children around that you need human contact. And this, um, this mailing list became a part of that. Um, so I reached out to it with 2004 and the 20th anniversary coming up. People were beginning to talk about, well, should we have a convention surrounding uh, the film? And it really wasn't feasible. I mean, I, there was no way at that time uh, with nothing happening on the on, on Buckaroo front to uh, get guests, find a location, get enough headcount to actually make it economically viable. So I, like an idiot, raised my hand and said, what if we do the newsletter? There's that newsletter that Fox put out back in 1984 or 86 and beyond, I should say, um, that hasn't been around for a while. We could redo that. We could you know, just do a one-off uh, newsletter and, and send it out to people just like in the good old days by, by mail, which again, stupid idea because you have to pay for that. Um, so one of the people on that mailing list happened to be the editor of World Watch One after the initial uh, founding directors uh, of, the, of the newsletter had exited. Uh, his name is Alan Smith. Uh, and uh, Alan and I uh, got together and started knocking around ideas. And um, eventually what I did was I reached out to the, uh, the Banzai Institute website. Uh, to say, hey, you know, we're putting this newsletter together. You know, you're, obviously you guys have got what's going on. You've, you've got your finger on the pulse of Buckaroo. Um, any idea of who we should reach out to uh, to do this newsletter? And that was when, shocker of shockers, about a week later, I got an email back from Michael Okuda, who is a, um, who is a longtime uh, person in the art department of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, all those series that came out in the uh, late 80s uh, and through the 90s into the early 2000s. And he said, um, I've reached out to director W.D. Richter, and he would be delighted to do an interview with you. I haven't even asked for an interview at this point. And so I was like, uh, okay. And uh, as soon as I closed out the email, I did the happy dance and immediately wrote Alan. It's like, oh my God, we got an interview with the UT director. We got an interview with him. So um, at that point, the game was on. Uh, and we, uh, that was an incredible um, spark of uh, inspiration because it was really that moment where we're sort of like, this is real. We're going we're gonna to do this. Um, things developed from there and we'll get into that, but that was sort of the genesis of it all. So you guys have been, but you guys have basically been doing the newsletter digital zine because it's more than a newsletter now. It's like a, it's like a digital magazine that you guys put up. Well, yeah. And actually, so, uh, Alan and I parted ways the second issue, which is about the time that, um, Moonstone books started doing the comic books. Um, but yeah, since then, <clears throat> we had either done our own individual editions. We came together for one uh, other anniversary, anniversary edition, I think in 2010. Um, and it really kind of, in spite of itself, grew because, I mean, let's face it, 
we were working with a film that had died in the 80s, um, a television show that had died, well, the first one television show that died in the 80s, which was uh, Heroes in Trouble, which wasn't actually even Buckaroo Banzai because they couldn't do that because Beagleman told them no. Um, then we had this other Fox series died on the table. Um, and so you had these series of deaths that really didn't produce anything that you could use, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like, we don't have the script. We can't publish that. And, uh, you know, and crowed, uh, to everybody in fandom, Hey, we've got this, this document, we got, you should read it. Um, so in spite of that, I think once Moonstone kicked in and once our uh, relationships deepened with, uh, Rick and Mac, um, that's when it really took off. That's when we were able to make something that was a real zine. Um, because you began to ask questions. They got more comfortable with us. We got more comfortable with them. It was actually a relationship at a certain point where it's sort of like, Hey, okay, I can, I can email this guy. I'm not, not going to be a jerk or anything. They know I'm not going to be. Um, and so it kind of grew from there. And that's why it's a zine now. Yeah. The, the, the cool thing about the, the newsletter or the zine is like, you know, the, like what, what it constitutes is like pretty much what any fan of anything would could only hope existed for their thing that they're into. And there are, there are so few examples of that. I mean, obviously bigger things have that like, you know, like Dr. Who has a magazine. So it's like, cool, I can subscribe to Dr. Who magazine and I get all this extra inside and all these things. So the Dr. Who fans are covered, but so few small little weird things have a resource like this where you get really into the thing and maybe it's a couple movies or a couple books, or maybe it's literally just one movie like like uh, like Buckaroo Banzai. And you get obsessed with this, but then that hunger for more just doesn't. There's nothing else there. It's just it's just there's a bottom. You hit the bottom with the shovel and then at, and then it's like, oh, I got to find other things that are like this. And, you know, there are very few things that have that like luxury of like, oh, there's this whole resource of like just more stuff to consume and like you know, sate my nerdness for this thing. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a podcast that, uh, that, that, uh, John Darniel, the, uh, the principal, uh, musician for the mountain goats, the, the main singer songwriter, uh, member of the band. He does a podcast with another guy and it's called, I only listen to the mountain goats. And they basically just go through every mountain goats album track by track and break down like the making of it, the meaning of the lyrics, where he was at during that time, all these different things. And it's like, if you're a fan of the mountain goats, it's pure gold. It's like, you could only dream that your favorite band had this. And this is, this reminds me of that a lot where it's just like, not everybody has the luxury of like having this huge in-depth resource of more stuff to consume about their favorite thing. Well, thank you. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's quite a compliment. This is what we, we kind of strive for. But I think the reason that that arose is because we had the luxury of being able to explore it as much as we were able to and, you know, indulged in that exploration, which is it's incredibly rare. I mean, that resource really exists because Rick and Mac have been very indulgent of us. And they've been saying, you know, well, hey, OK, you know, we'll we'd be happy to play along. Um I don't know if there are that many um, other uh, film franchises where that opportunity exists, to be perfectly honest. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I, uh, I was just going to say that, like, it's so in-depth and so labyrinthian 
that it kind of mirrors the movie in some way. It's almost kind of like they're spiritually linked. You know what I mean? Like the movie is this weird joke between two friends that became this complete like ball of yarn of stories, which is what I which I, what I love about it. I, I love the fact that it's like discarded elements from all these previous in jokes that they had put into a record of their relationship together. And then the the zine mimics that in that it, it's almost like the Rosetta Stone for the movie. You know, where the, the zine and, and I guess the uh, Max novelization, like those those two are the like the uh, the duolingo of trying to decipher the movie and like understand its mercurial nature. Like I, I just I I'm I'm so one, I'm ecstatic that you're here and that you've tolerated me, me emailing you <laughs> trying to get to get to Mac and, and, and Rick and everything. But but also like just the fact that now we can all have this conversation about this movie that. For, for so long, I feel like I'm the only one who's been like, ah, it's so good. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because that, that is such a common reaction. And it's, it's, I think an un, it's not an unfair reaction. I mean, people react and that's what their reaction is. Um, but I think it's, um, it's funny because I think that people who get into Buckaroo get into it because to a certain extent, they feel it's esoteric. If you know what I mean, there's a sort of esoteric element to it. Um, that really becomes, this is ours. Nobody else quite understands it, do they? <laughs> Which is, you know, I don't think that's exactly true. I think, um, there, it can be a very difficult film to understand in the first place. And that's not necessarily because it's esoteric. It can just simply because, uh, be because of structure, be because of certain directorial or uh, editorial choices. Um, some of it is because like uh, they, they had to change cinematographers after day three. I mean, talk about something that'll throw you for a loop. They had to deal with David Beagleman, even more of a loop. Um, so it, it's the fandom is definitely out there. It's always been out there. I think it's grown because the legend has grown. It's never really died. And that has nothing to do with the, the zine at all. I can tell you that much because I don't think we get enough eyeballs for that to be the case. I think it's it's happened because um, pop culture has glommed onto it and kept it alive in sneaky little ways, you know, be it, uh, the oscillation over thrusters creeping up in Star Trek to, uh, the, the occasional laugh all you can monkey boy reference that someone drops into a script somewhere. As previously stated, the two men behind the enigmatic hero Buckaroo Banzai are Earl Mac Rausch and W.D. Richter. They met due to the fact that they both had attended Dartmouth. It's kind of interesting, though, that they that just given the nature of the movie, the the sort of dealing with synchronicity and things like that, that they they simul they were at the same college simultaneously, never knew each other, and then only in retrospect had formed a common um, fo- formed a relationship based on like, oh, we were there that whole time, and we just never crossed paths. Right, and they and in all fairness, they were in two different classes. I think uh, Mac is the younger. Um, and Rick is the elder, but by two years or something like that. So they just, it's like going to college, you know, for anyone, it's like the chances of running into a freshman when you're a junior are not necessarily huge. Rick, an avid reader, had found a copy of Arkansas Adios, the debut novel that Mac had written and loved it. The two men began corresponding back and forth, exchanging letters. Eventually, the topic of screenwriting came up and Mac expressed interest. Rick, as he's known to his friends, said... Uh, why don't you come out to Los Angeles and stay with me? Which didn't happen right away, but would eventually. As the years passed, Richter was able to get his foot in the door and made some headway in the screenwriting world. 
Mac took him up on the offer and came out to the land of Tinseltown. One night over dinner, Mac told Richter and his wife about a character that he'd been thinking about developing into a screenplay named Buckaroo Banzai. Richter and his wife loved the idea and paid Mac $1,500 to develop it. Mac Rauch told interviewer John Flynn in 1995, I would get 30 or 40 pages into a script, abandon its storyline, and write a new one. It's so easy to start something and then, since you're really not as serious about it as you should be, end up writing half of it. You shove the 100 pages in a drawer and try to forget about it. Over the years, I started a dozen buckaroo scripts that ended that way. Here's an excerpt from a Rick interview taken from World Watch 1, the long-running Buckaroo Banzai fanzine, on when Mac Roush first mentioned the idea of naming the character Buckaroo Bandy. He had this idea for a country western, action-adventure serial in effect, and that it would have sci-fi elements. You can't say, oh, that's interesting, and then move on to other things. What are you talking about? I don't know if he had it worked out or if he had just started improvising stuff verbally. It got to some point where it sounded intriguing enough, and we knew he needed money. That if we optioned it for, I think, initially 1500 unwritten, that would subsidize his writing it. And he called that little contract we wrote up Jet Car. On the number of the different iterations that were developed and abandoned during the writing process. The strange case of Mr. Cigars had great promise, and he may have finished it someday. There was a gigantic robot involved that was Godzilla in size. Up in the head, these evil people were running it, pulling big levers and stuff. Mr. Cigars was a villain who was going to kill a lot of the world leaders by planting exploding cigars at a big conference. I knew where he was going, but he never got there in the script because he started Lepers from Saturn, which he started in a treatment form. He did finish that, a 57-page treatment, Lepers from Saturn, a Buckaroo Banzai adventure. And then it just kept rolling. Okay, are you going to write that script for that? He said, let me start it, and it came in with a title page, a Buckaroo Banzai Thriller. Find the jet car, said the president. Through all these, more details kept coming in. The Hong Kong Cavaliers replaced the Hopalongs as Buckaroo's country western band. Penny Pretty would suddenly appear in a different context and blow through the script, but come back later when he started another adventure. He only got 67 pages in to find a jet car before he was writing Shields Against the Devil, Buckaroo Banzai Thriller, that he actually went to the end of it. It's a 109-page screenplay. He finished that in 75. That's where he changed the name of the Shields. That was the original name of the support group, to Knights of the Blue Shield. And then it became the Blue Blaze Irregulars subsequently. But through all this, the context of the world was being enriched. Whether the narrative was abandoned or not, there were ideas in there that we did hang on to, like the World Crime League. All that stuff got us to a point where we put together what we call the Buckaroo Bonsai Sampler, which is about 10 or 15 pages of each of one of these things, which in some cases was all the pages he had written. A 13-page teaser which said, to be continued. So in case it's not clear to the listener, Earl Mac Roush wrote a bunch of fucking Buckaroo Bonsai movies that they kept incorporating, like, basically they, even though they were just drafts or abandoned drafts of previous movies, they all existed in the same universe, so when they made the actual movie that got made across the eighth dimension, all those other movies are in continuity with it, which is why it's structured the way it is, and why it's a joke of, like, it's this pulp adventure thing, which is, like, the 56th novel in a in a franchise, which is the coolest fucking thing ever to me. Which I actually, I actually kind of relate to that process a lot because that's kind of similar in a, in a, in kind of a different way in terms of the end result, but that's kind of similar to, to how Deadbolt happened. Like Deadbolt, I was like conceptualizing and messing around with, with doing Deadbolt stuff for like literally a decade. Which is your comic, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. It's a robot Philip K. Dick inspired detective story. Yeah. And it, and it started off as there, there are, there's, there's, Four episodes of a live action Deadbolt TV show. 
full scripts for like for four episodes of it, like it, like the beginning of a story arc. And then there's a whole like 50 page script for like a different comic that just takes place in the deadbolt world. And then there and then there's like there's all there's like a like a video game treatment and all these different things. And basically, I just like worked on those things for like a decade with friends just kind of kicking them around and kind of kidding ourselves of like, yeah, we're, we're going to totally make a live action robot fucking future dystopian noir show. And then that all kind of just ended up getting pared down to like, I took all of just basically in the same way of just all this world that I built and I just pared it down into what the comic is, which is it's, it's like a, it's a story that's crafted around. It's like the tip of the iceberg of this whole world that was built in all these abandoned scripts. The funny thing with Mac is, is that I think that his approach wasn't actually an approach. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, Mac from everything that I've gathered, you know, emailing back and forth at times to kind of reading the narrative as we've gone along, you know, just the interviews and so forth that keep track uh, with the newsletter stuff uh, really seems to operate from a number of different smaller, not smaller concerns, but concerns that aren't necessarily immediately obvious. Um, One is a sense of fun. He's got to be enjoying what he's doing or else he finds it really hard to proceed. Two, he bores, he's bored easily. He's got to really have a reason to be doing what he's doing. And that kind of goes back to part one, which is fun. Um, and bored easily, it may not be the right thing. But he. it seems to me from everything that I've seen, he gets to that point where he's sort of like, I don't know about this anymore. I'm going to do, do something else. Uh, and actually, back when he was in L.A. at the time, one of the big attractions for him to being out there wasn't writing for Hollywood he is an avid musician and was really trying to kind of get going in the L.A. Uh, club scenes, like playing music and re- doing some recording out there. So a lot of what he was uh, really focusing on as much as Buckaroo was his music career. I don't know. He wouldn't even call it a career, I don't think. He, uh, But his music and just kind of jamming on that and seeing where that was taking him and seeing, uh, you know, who he'd meet along the way and just kind of having fun with it. So. Uh, yeah, it, it's funny because there is definitely that serial aspect of Buckaroo, but there's also a very, not necessarily ad hoc, but it's a very much sort of like, I'm going to do this. No, nah, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this. And it's it's very much catches catch can rather than sort of a, a, a grand design, I guess is the best way of putting it. And I think that's why it's brilliant, because if you actually made, if you actually set out to do this in like you're saying, like a grand design of I'm going to write 50 scripts and they're all going to take place in the same, like, ugh, who, that would never, it would never happen. It would never go anywhere. You would, you'd die. Hey, have you ever heard of Babylon 5? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. I've heard of, I've heard of him taking before Watchmen money though. So there's that. Um, the, 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 the the thing that's so Im- exciting to me about it though is is all of the kind of like urban legendy you know you know you like there's this there's a story about him selling a Volvo and there was a script underneath the passenger seat that he didn't realize was in there right yeah something like that I remember that part who know who knows if it's real but I love the idea that there is a there is an un like this person just has gold and they don't know it 
You know what I mean? Like this person bought a Volvo and there's, they find this weird screenplay that's like Buckaroo Banzai against the demon slayers. I don't give a fuck about this or whatever it is. And they throw it away. And there's something so romantic and, and heartbreaking about that. Like same thing with Alan Moore where his like magnum opus after, after Watchmen, like he, he left his giant book of script slash notes in a taxi cab. Yeah. Like that. And he just, he just lost it. And it, I mean, it, and it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, but there is something that's kind of like, I mean, that's happened to me. One time I moved and I lost 150 pages worth, worth of original art that hadn't been scanned. Like I spent like nine months drawing a book and then I lost all this artwork and I was like, like a part of me died. <laughs> I was just like, oh God, I can't even, I can't even go forward anymore. Well, it's your kids, man. I mean, they, they, seriously, you pour yourself into that stuff. Yeah. And it, it's so, I don't know. There's just something that's so interesting and, and, and I relate to it in that I, I feel like mine is less that I am like Mac maybe in that there's kind of a stutter stepping to it. But more, I, I can't deny myself. I can't say no to myself over time. So like I'll work on a book and then I'll come up with another idea for a, like a, a way to incorporate another plot line or another like weird metatextual thing. And then I'll just add that. And so like all of the things I end up making are like hats on hats on hats on hats on hats. Yeah. Well, the, the newsletters become that recently, like uh, typically, well, okay. So when we started out, we had about an issue it was not a, a planned sort of schedule, but once every year or two. And then it was a little more frequent for a little bit. And then it died completely for about five years. This year, we will be probably, hopefully, putting out four issues. We already put out one. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, making our next one, which is about the jet car. Uh, we've got a third one, which will be primarily, well, it's the jet car and the uh, the making of the uh, Blu-ray dock for the uh, the Shout Factory Blu-ray. And uh, the uh, DVD that came out back in 2002, because there was a lot of interesting stuff that happened for that one. Um, then there'll be the book uh, against the world crime lead. Finally. Um, and then after that, we are, I really, for some reason, last Halloween, I, I got this bug that I wanted to do a War of the Worlds Halloween issue <laughs> and just do a sort of like, you know, uh, like I'm literally reading a Wells biography right now so that I can compose how much did Wells really know about the invasion? You know, that just do the article based on that. And there's actually a lot of ways that you can sneakily pull from what actually happened in his life's history and, and make it work. Um, but yeah, those, those rabbit holes open up and, uh, it seems like one begets the other frequently. And that's definitely happening with these issues for sure. Um, and now we're going to read a piece uh, that was written by our very own Dan Berger. 1971 also saw the release of Dartmouth alumnus Earl MacRouch's second novel, Arkansas Audios. After graduating from college, Rauch returned to his native Texas and geared up for postgraduate studies. Matters quickly changed, as Rauch remembers. I was technically a law school dropout, but only attended a week or so of classes, so basically, I was hanging around Austin playing my guitar. Rauch also kept busy working for a mobile home finance company. When I went to work for the mobile home finance people, my job involved a lot of driving, he said. I didn't have an office or even my own apartment. I was living with five other people, so I really wasn't doing any writing at all, nor was I making any plans. In Los Angeles, W.D. Richter and his wife Susan were already seasoned residents of the City of Angels following his graduate studies at USC Film School and a paid internship at Warner Brothers. 
Richter was also a fellow Dartmouth alumnus, sharing one overlapping year with Rausch during their undergraduate studies, though neither had encountered the other on the campus at the time. Serendipity intervened further in the guise of a Dartmouth alumni magazine. In a 2004 interview, Richter recalled, There was a review for a book called Arkansas Adios that sounded very funny to me, so I ordered the book. Richter was impressed enough to write Rausch a letter praising his writing and suggested that Rausch consider moving to L.A. to write for the movies. Writing for film wasn't foremost on Rausch's mind, however. As he remembers, When Rick's letters came, I mainly just wanted to see L.A. and maybe play in a band. So on Monday, March 20th, 1972, Rausch flew to L.A., checked into a motel by the freeway, and cold-called the Richters to say he had taken W.D.'s advice and come to try his hand at screenwriting. Fortunately, the Richters were home to take the call. Richter picked up Rausch from his motel and drove to the 1920s cottage in the Alvarado district that he and Susan were renting. They fed Mac his first Los Angeles dinner, during which the three of us tried to sort out what it meant that Mac was actually sitting there in our house, ready to attack Hollywood, according to Richter. Roush's priorities still revolved primarily around his music. I played an amateur night at the Troubadour, performed a couple of my songs, he said. Being a screenwriter was nothing I ever planned, although I had to be impressed by the fact that Rick drove a Cadillac. Roush made an impression on Richter as well. Two days later, already enamored of the itinerant Texas scribe, Richter took Mac to meet his agent, Mark Lichman, who signed Mac on the spot. As Roush remembers, my first screenwriting assignment was with Jay Weston. He had parties in a house up in the hills and let me come up whenever I wanted to use the pool or hang out. He frequently wasn't there and the housekeeper just let me in. I took a girlfriend up there on occasion to use his pool and mirror ceiling bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> that is so Mac. I was like, yeah, you do it, boy. Come on, there you go. <laughs> Roush set up shop in an apartment across the street from the Richter's cottage and went to work. We'd have dinners and talk a lot and he started telling us about this character, Buckaroo Bandy, that he was thinking of doing a screenplay about, said Richter. Buckaroo's appeal quickly grew for the Richters. For me, it was the twinkle in Mac's eye when he told us his ideas, Richter remembers. We'd read his books, gotten his drift, and just assumed he'd entertain us, maybe even astonish us with his imagination and fantastic prose. Script development, 1973 through 1980. In late summer of 1973, the Richters decided to bet on Buckaroo and met with Roush about developing the character for the big screen. We were young, full of enthusiasm, determined to upgrade the quality of writing in Hollywood if we had a chance, said Richter. Mac was a chance worth taking. Susan and I took the plunge, paid Mac $1,500, which was a decent amount of money for us to risk. Roush pitched an original story idea for a series of interlocked, episodic motion picture adventures to us. These adventures featured a multi-talented country western singer and jet car driver named Buckaroo Bandy. On September 27th of 1973, Roush entered into a one-year option agreement with the Richter's Corporation, Harry Bailey Productions, for what Richter described as a serio-comic screenplay based upon a single episode from this proposed Buckaroo Bandy series. The contract called that script simply Jet Car, and Roush's first attempt to write it found him retitling it The Strange Case of Mr. Cigars, a Buckaroo Bandy Mystery, and abandoning it after only 14 pages but not before introducing the jet car and establishing that Buckaroo's exploits are legendary and that people in far-off Cairo know his name. Richter continues, The proposed plot line of this first episode was to be Buckaroo's race to defeat Mr. Cigars before that villain assassinated dozens of world leaders with exploding cigars at a big global conference. As noted in our 2004 interview, Mac's working technique was sort of improvisational, said Richter. He would write 30 pages and then give them to us. This is uh, fascinating to me. Because, you know, they always say that, you know, every movie that gets made, it, it they don't get made because somebody wants them to get made. They get made because they have to be made. You know, there's political ramifications or, you know, people are having their arms bent. Like movies are so expensive and difficult to get off the ground that there's there's just always somebody pushing really hard. And these two guys 
building a sampler of all of their ideas is a really cool to me and b so unique because especially here in LA like any idea that's not completely edgeless and just a a smooth orb of bullshit gets thrown away and for for these guys to be like, all right, so we got this idea and it's like a movie universe, but this is like 20 years before movie universes are really a thing, even though they were a thing in the thirties with the universal movies, but we're whatever. Most development executives aren't aware of that. So we got this movie universe and we're going to have like 15 pages of all these scripts. And like, do you want to make one Mr. Hollywood man? And like the fact that they went around pitching it this way is just, it's, it's so cool to me. It's so cool. Smooth Orva bullshit. The Michael Bay story. <laughs> no, it's like a, a Timothy Leary decided to retool the MCU. It totally is. It's sort of like, whoa. Actually, Timothy Leary, it's funny because um, Mac actually was going to write a, I don't know if you guys know the book Neuromancer by William Gibson. Um, the, he was going to actually at one point write a script for that back in, I think it was uh, the late 80s, like 89 or something. And I actually interviewed him about that a little bit because I love Neuromancer. I, I uh, you know, if you like Blade Runner, you're probably going to be a cyberpunk geek as well. Seminal cyberpunk. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it really it kind of took its uh, it, its uh, notes from Blade Runner. Um, that that's the whole reason I think that uh, the mirror shade slash cyberpunk movement kind of started. Um, but I'm, I'm reading through the part of the interview here and, uh, Mac is talking about, because there's this video that came out to promote the film before it came out. It's a long story, but Timothy Leary, I guess, was a champion of Gibson's work. And so it got tied up into the kind of the machinations for the making of this film and so I asked Mac about uh, what one of the highlights of, of going through this experience was. And he said, the highlight for me was meeting Timothy Leary, actually giving him a ride home one day. He was a huge admirer of Gibson and Neuromancer and was in some sense a friend of the project. He saw the internet coming and thought it, would, it could be this massive conscious raising tool. He was working with people to design the interactive software and games, truly visionary. What do you say to Timothy Leary? Mostly, you just listen. So it was, it's kind of, it, it kind of speaks back to the, the section that you were uh, talking about earlier. And I, I love that uh, interview bit with Mac. I was able to put into that longer piece about him, you know, like uh, writing this film for this guy, the guy opening up his house, he's taking girlfriends there to the mirrored bedroom. You know, it's like he's, that's really kind of what Mac, uh, seems to be all about from what I, you know, from talking to him is this, this, this sense of like, sort of, Hey man, this is, this could be fun. Let's do this. And I think that that's really why Buckaroo is the way Buckaroo is in a lot of respects. It's, it's pretty cool. And also Timothy Leary. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just love, as we're about to talk about now that I just love the fact that he's just like, eh, I mean, I don't really care if I become a screenwriter, like whatever. I just want to like play some music. And then he's just like, writing a movie for Martin Scorsese just falls into his lap. Yeah, the basically the next data point on our, on our history of Buckaroo Banzai is that uh, Mac takes a couple years off of working on Buckaroo Banzai in order to, to write New York, New York for Martin Scorsese, uh, which is just kind of, it's just unthinkable. It's <laughs> yeah. just like, what? Do you know any of the, any, have you talked to him about that and the, the experience of that and the, the kind of 
No, actually, I don't know if uh, Steve Matson. actually Steve Matson was the first hire at Dark Horse Comics and is also one of the, the bullpen or the staff over here at uh, the World Watch One newsletter. And uh, he did a little bit, he's done more deep diving into Mac's other projects than I have. I've, and I think it's just because I've had my nose so buried in Buckaroo purely as a matter of course that, you know, he, he's broadened out a little bit. So I don't know if he, I forget if he, I don't think he has talked to Mac about that. But the, uh, the other one is that, and I, am I rushing it if I talk about the other project that Mac did after New York, New York? No, no, go for it. Okay. Because you think about those two and then you get to the John Belushi biopic. <laughs> You're just like, whoa, what the, um, but it's, that's honestly, I think that that's the way Mac operates. It's sort of like, Hey man, it's cool. This I, I'm going to enjoy this. And he does it. And there it is. Um, with serious, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, part of me is envious of that because uh, that sounds like an easier life to live. Uh, but that unfortunately is not the world that I live in. Yeah. Well, and to be honest, I, I think it's an oversimplification too. I mean, it, that's, that's part of the problem about having discussions like this is that you leave a lot of humanity out of it. You know, it's not just these things, these little snippets. There's a lot more of these people's lives than we, that are left on the table. Yeah. I mean, I love writing and making stuff and, you know, but I'm not going to lie. Like, <laughs> Sometimes I just don't want to have to get up on a fucking Saturday and work on the thing that needs to be done. You know, there's just, I'm just like, oh, fuck me. Do I really need to proof this manuscript or whatever the fuck it is? That's not fun to do. All right, here we go. With serious discussions starting up again surrounding Buckaroo Banzai, a small cadre of supporters formed around the project. A production company was formed for a new script that was started. A 60-page treatment titled Lepers from Saturn was written. This was shopped around with Richter attached to direct. No one was interested. They compiled a document of snippets from the Buckaroo Banzai scripts that we had previously discussed and started pitching it as a franchise. Neil Canton, one of the producers on the project, introduced them to Sidney Beckerman, who liked the pitch and introduced them to David Beagleman at United Artists slash MDM. Within 24 hours, they had a development deal. It's interesting to me, too, about, like, so one, Beagleman is a interesting character, to say the least. But, but also, it's interesting to me how much of every creative person's life is you kind of toil away in secret for years, sometimes decades, in order so that at that one meeting or that one coffee shop or that one chance elevator meeting... You can say, yes, I've done this and I've done this and I've done that and I have this happen. Blah, 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 blah. And then that opens the floodgate based on you being able to say whatever the magic incantation of I have seven scripts about this weird cowboy themed adventurer. And then all of a sudden now you have a, a film deal like it's it, it's kind of depressing to me how much work you have to do in order to get to that moment. You know what I mean? Well, nudging fate is never easy. Tempting fate totally is. But nudging fate, no. <laughs> um, and that's really what it comes down to. I mean, I think it's underappreciated just how much luck and serendipity really factors into the success of any endeavor, especially one as unique as this one, as Buckaroo Banzai. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of have to, you know, into the universe's eye and say, well, come on, are we going to do this or not? 
And, uh, you know, eventually I think it sticks if you're persistent at it and uh, you've got the, the goods and they have the goods. I mean, the, the funny thing is that it's like, who would possibly recognize that and how that happened? I, I, I'm still in awe of that. I, I don't know how that worked out, but it did. The title of the new project was changed to Lizards from Saturn and then Lectroids from Saturn and then Lectroids from Planet 10. The WGA writer's strike at the time caused the project to languish, but then eventually, after being bought out of turnaround and moved to Fox, it was greenlit with a $12 million budget. Mac and Rick had finally done it. They'd willed their kayfabe captain into existence. They were actually going to make a Buckaroo Banzai feature film, but the hardest part was still to come. Hey, this is Dave. Thanks for listening to the show, and I just want to let you know that the Deep Cuts Pod now has merch, baby! Go to deepcutspod.com, click on the store link, or by going to bit.ly.com slash deepcutsmerch, or by clicking the link in the show notes. And you can uh, purchase a bunch of cool designs made by illustrator Daniel Taraka, my friend and fan of the show. Those designs come on a variety of t-shirts, sweatshirts, baby onesies, mugs, fanny packs, all kinds of stuff. One of them is a Tintin homage where it's Andrew and I running just like the intro to Tintin. Bacon and Legs Miami Nights shirt. Davy Bakes Papa Price Morning Show shirt. And a shirt that just says this shirt is kayfabe. So if you want to pick up some Deep Cuts merch, now's the time to do so. Act 2, that weird Lizardo and the Yo-Yo-Dine donut holes. Rick and Mac were doing it, finally. After literally years of talking about Buckaroo Banzai up on the big screen and working tirelessly, it was finally happening. But like every success in Hollywood, it came with strings attached. Beagleman became the real enemy of Buckaroo Banzai, not Hanoi Jan. He wanted the original opening of the film, both featuring Jamie Lee Curtis and James Saito, as Buckaroo Banzai's parents removed and any references to Hanoi Jan taken from the film. He succeeded in the former, not quite on the latter. The movie started shooting the second week of September 1983. Beagleman also fired director of photography halfway through the film and replaced Jordan Cronin with, the director of photography of Blade Runner for fuck's sake, with Fred J. Cohenkamp, the DP of Patton and Man from Uncle. Peter Weller was cast as Buckaroo Banzai, and an impressive cast was assembled around him. And yes, you're probably asking yourself, wait, but isn't Buckaroo Banzai supposed to be biracial? Eh, yes. In this movie, he is. But in reality, it's a weird David Carradine in Kung Fu just don't acknowledge the racist bullshit here thing. I'd be curious to ask Rick and Mac what their thoughts were here on their intentions versus what the studio was asking them to do. Dan, do you know? Do you know anything about that? Because that's something like I love this movie, Unabashed, and that's still something that's always stuck out to me as like, Ugh. yeah. Well, I mean, at that time, I think you look at the casting and movies in general, and there was a lot of that going on. I mean, it was actually a lot of it not going on too, which gets forgotten. There was a lot of good stuff going on where they were actually casting to the the race of the character, which was which is good. Um, I think which is actually potentially more you was sort of the yellow menace component with Hanoi Shan, to be perfectly honest. I mean, that's a holdover from, you know, 30s, 40s uh, BS. 
But I think it is important, though, to acknowledge both of those aspects of the movie while still celebrating it for being what it is, acknowledging that, like, you know, sometimes you do your best and sometimes you fall short and sometimes you have blind spots or weaknesses that you, you know, there's, you know, uh, people like, you know, the producer on the movie firing the director of photography, which is, you know, compromising their vision in one regard. And who knows what those casting decisions were like behind the scenes. I've always heard that they went to... Peter Weller and, you know, asked him to be in the movie and like really convinced him to do it. So uh, maybe they wanted him to be in it. Um, and then that, you know, that, that still is, it's not necessarily damning. I guess it is kind of, it's just, it's a, it's all of this is kind of background radiation for the, the ultimate decisions that are made, right? Where it's like, it's not, not cool that a, this straight up white dude is, is playing this character that's supposed to be biracial. That narrative is very strange and interesting, though. This idea, because, um, you know, obviously, historically, it has not been sort of accepted in the Hollywood system. You know, you don't you, you know, the, the main character, you can slowly over time as we progress through the decades uh, you know, especially in the 70s, representation in 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 film became more diverse, but it was it was always side characters and the characters were often, you know, very, very stereotypical. But you could never have anything other than a white man as the main character. That was kind of like, sure, you know, diversify these the the, the cast. But the main the main guy's got to be, you know, he's got to be like the main guy. And it's an interesting narrative to say to finally at this point in the 80s say like sure the main character can be at least part asian but he can't be an asian the, the actor can't be asian though he still got <laughs> like that, that's that's it's so it's that's so, so up. it's yeah. so weird and it and it reminds it's like and it's like you know the the quote unquote personal victory uh that orson wells you know to draw that parallel that he scored in the in, in with Touch of Evil, where he made a movie starring a Mexican man, but it's not a it's 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 fucking Charlton Heston in brownface. It's like it's so weird. It's like he scored that that like victory for diversity, quote unquote, that they allowed him to have a main character that was a Mexican man, but it but it can't actually be a real Mexican man. It's got to be a white guy in brown face. It's just... I, I, yeah, the structural white supremacy is so ingrained in our culture that these massive multimedia conglomerates and corporations are so entrenched in the dogmatic response that only white faces generate financial, uh, you know, viability for, for a film product because movies are products. Like, we, we all like to think that they're art, but most movies are more product than they are art. Um, and, and yeah, those, those, the, 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 the snake eating its own tail of, you know, the cultural, uh, acceptance of, uh, in air quotes, diversity versus the structural white supremacy is just, oof, there's, is, there's some dark stuff that our country is reckoning with, uh, every day currently. Yes. Oh, for sure. Actually, it's kind of funny that we're, uh, that Wells is kind of caught up in this as part of Buckaroo because, uh, HG Wells back in, I think it was the thirties or the twenties. No, it must have been the thirties at some point, uh, put on a, a, a show of Macbeth in New York that was an all black cast. Uh, it was, you know, it was, was something that, uh, I, it was incredibly unique at the time. Um, so there are historical moments where this blossoms. Um, and even in Buckaroo, it's a fairly diverse cast. Uh, it's not 
definitely not on the gender lines. Gender lines is awful. Um, you know, you basically have Laura Harrington and you've got, uh, uh, you know, Ellen Barkin and that's about it. But um, if you look at uh, good guys and bad guys, mostly good guys, actually, and it's granted in lesser roles, you know, it's like Casper uh, Lindley, uh, Scooter Lindley, uh, the uh, Black Letroids are all African-American uh, actors. And it's kind of like it's, it's a cast that is actually much more diverse than one would uh, imagine on first blush. And John Parker in particular, I loved Parker. It's funny because when you watch the movie, it feels like the the diverse casting is sort of being put forward. Like it seems like they are kind of making a statement. So which makes it even stranger that the main character is like half Asian, but it's a white guy. It's like it's it's so weird. Well, uh I so I, I over the process of, you know, kind of reaching out to everybody associated with Buckaroo Banzai, um, I've become somewhat acquaintances with Pepe Serna, who plays Reno Nevada in the movie. Yeah. And and his character is, is very progressive in that he's not defined by his ethnicity and also not um you know, he's the he's the like court stenographer of the group. He's the one, you know, the the the, the novelization, the Buckaroo Banzai novelization is written from his perspective. And and actually, Pepe told me that he and Mac got along really well because they would speak to each other in Spanish on the set. Um, and I don't know if this is true, but Pepe also said that um, uh, when Mac was younger, he would go, uh, he, he dyed his hair black and would go uh, in, in areas of Texas where there were like uh, Latino bars and stuff and play guitars in the bars uh, with, with Mexican American and Mexican musicians. Um, and that's kind of why he and Pepe became good friends on set because they had a lot of common musical interests and, and cultural reference points, um, which was fascinating to me because I had never even considered that, that he would. I mean, I knew he was from Texas, but that's kind of all I knew. Right. Well, I mean, considering where Texas, Texas is geographically, you know, there's a significant component. Well, California is the same way. There's a significant, uh, you know, Latino American uh, component, for, you know, it, 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 people typically say Mexican American is simply not true. It's from all over. You know, it's just that happens to be the stop along the way. Um, but yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's 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 interesting too that the characters are colorful, no pun intended, but they're colorful in a in a different way than most movie characters are colorful, and that they have these outlandish costumes and weird names, and they're obviously they're they're it's obvious that they have bizarre backstories, but they're given nothing to do in the movie, so you don't really know anything about them. Like there's a fucking doctor who dresses like a cowboy who is just wandering through scenes. You know what I mean? Well, and it's funny to see the evolution of New Jersey because it's very obvious that this is awkward dude coming in at the a police station and meeting. <laughs> they're meeting him at the freaking police station for fuck's sake. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's he is literally dressed like a singing cowboy from the old uh, Western movies. And, but it, by the time you get to the assault on Yo-Yo Dine, you know, he's down to basically that shirt and there's no chaps. You know, he's basically like, OK, yeah, I guess I better lose this because this is not the gig I thought it was. Well, it's, it's interesting because it almost seems when they pick him up, whenever they pick up New Jersey, it almost seems like in a weird metatextual way, like he didn't get the memo that they were no that they were no longer a country band. Like, that's what it feels like to me. I don't know if that was in any, any way intentional, but that's what it feels like to me is like that character just like was an anachronism from an earlier version of the script or something. 
he thought he thought that he was gonna join the Hopalongs, and they're like, "Oh no, we're not the Hopalongs anymore. We're the fucking we're the Hong Kong Cavaliers now." Yeah, exactly. I don't know that that could be. I mean, uh, the way I always kind of looked at it was that, um, you know, here's a guy who is a is a physician who's deeply embedded in that world and is trying to make an impression and just gets it totally wrong <laughs> you know, because he's got his mind on way different matters and is just basically glomming onto whatever he can to figure out how to make it work. And he just does not get it. I just also love that most of the supporting cast is given nothing to do. Like normally that like, it's almost like this. The thing that I love about Buckaroo Banzai is that it's the worst X-Men movie ever made. Like this is like, this is like, you know, X3 or it's, this is like X-Men 4 where they, they didn't want to green light a Wolverine solo movie. So they just made the whole movie about Wolverine and Buckaroo Bandai is, Buckaroo Banzai is the Wolverine movie or the Wolverine character. And all of the other characters are there because the actors are under contract, but they don't have anything to do because that wasn't the like studio remit for what the movie was going to be. So you have like perfect Tommy, who's such a cool looking character. His name is awesome. So basically Dark Phoenix is what you're talking about. Yes, yes, yes. This movie is Dark Phoenix, but great. It's great. It's so good. And I, it's so funny to me. Like, I just laugh every time I see the, like, the end credits one is great, where they're all walking in time to the music. It's awesome. But it's also really funny that, like, there's 50 characters on screen, and I only really recognize, like, two of them. <laughs> it's like, who the fuck are all these people? Like, they were basically not even in the movie. And that's why it's so great and funny, because they're, like remnants from all these previous other adventures like they they feel like they're this greek chorus of of previous escapades i love it right actually it was funny bringing up the march uh, and kind of getting back to something you may, uh, mentioned earlier about uh beagleman being an enemy of the film beagleman was a little bit more i would say ambiguous than that and the reason i say that is that he he did gr- green light it so it wouldn't have been made without him um, and in that respect, he couldn't possibly be the enemy. But when he got to the end of it, he realized that they needed a little extra something at the very end and they didn't have a budget to do it. So he actually gave them additional money to do the march. And guess what is the most iconic or at least one of the most iconic moments of that film? I mean, he, he made that work. It would not have worked without Beagleman saying yes. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason why it's as weird at the end as it is, because I think there are people in there that were not in the film. You're just like, who is that? Um, because they did that like a couple of minutes or a couple of months after the film, something like that. Um, I forget exactly how long after, but it was not at the time that they shot the film. The fact that the movie didn't win like four Oscars just on the in credit sequence alone is <laughs> or a music video award of some kind. I mean, oh, man. Like just the fact that the movie just ends with an anime in sequence, like it just has like it just has like an anime an anime ending. Uh, I feel like we've kind of talked about this, but I just want to discuss this really briefly. Um, in that, so the movie Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension is like a fake sequel to a franchise that never existed, but without that being the actual hook, right? Like that's like the in joke between Mac and Rick. So the movie itself is this kind of clunky, stutter-stepping thing where it, it has like four opening sequences where the movie just keeps kind of starting and establishing who Buckaroo Banzai is over and over again because the joke is that it's like he's like a pulp adventurer from the 1930s and you need to pay off that 
he knows how to do all these things from previous adventures. So we have to kind of be like, okay, we got to check the box of like, oh, all right, he's a doctor and he's in a band and he uh, is a race car driver. All right, moving on. Now we can actually start the movie. And that metatextual kind of tongue in cheek irony is something that I don't think most people are even aware exists. They're, they just, they're just kind of, uh, this, why, when is this going to start? Like, this is so weird that it just kind of keeps halting and just kind of starting over again. But now, 20 years later, that's exactly how movies in the MCU feel. Like, they're always paying off the thing that came before or, you know, there's a random character that pops up that if you haven't seen 50 TV shows and 17 movies, you're not going to be familiar who he is. And sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's the introduction of a character, but the introduction is treated as a big third act reveal where the audience, like, is sometimes just confused because the movies are so self-aware that the audiences are ahead of them and that they've read comics and whatnot. Um, and I, I just love that the structure mimics and parodies pulp novels like Doc Savage or Mac Bolan or Tom Swift, and that they're kind of in in this duet with the history of these types of characters at the same time, and that the structure of the movie is the joke of the movie. Like, it's literally the point. And Andrew and I talk a lot about kayfabe and, like, you know, the wrestling term kayfabe and and we, uh, you know, we, I don't think you can get through a, a, an episode about Buckaroo Banzai without talking about how much of the kayfabe in Buckaroo Banzai is purposeful and how much of it after the fact was just like, oh, it's kayfabe. That was all part of the plan. Like, there's a small part of me, and it was more before having read World Watch One stuff that you had done, Dan, of like, I low key don't know if there's that many scripts. Like, part of me is like, maybe he'd like, had a couple attempts and then kind of left it alone. Um, and then they like use that story to kind of like build the myth of Buckaroo Banzai. But now I'm, I'm, I, you know, I've seen, uh, I've seen the, the razor on the forehead gag and I'm completely, uh, you know, I got sprayed with blood in the audience in the first row and now I'm convinced. I'm like, ah, oh, wrestling is real. Buckaroo Banzai is real. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it, it it's, the the essential surreality of it makes it hard to parse out sometimes i think i mean even if you know you know even if you do uh know that the razor is being drawn across the forehead you know you may not believe it <laughs> when you see it it's just yeah it's 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 unique i don't know how else to describe it really but but also once you find out that it is a razor across the forehead that's not like any less impressive you're yeah, like, exactly. Holy, holy shit, these shit. guys are just cutting their own heads. That's to, amazing. To sell this effect. Um the 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 other interesting thing about this is that the the intro that we briefly mentioned that the original opening of the film where uh the Kurgan, what the shit is that guy's name? Oh, uh, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown. Yeah. I love it. I love that you you don't you didn't know his name and you could only just call him the Kurgan. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, all I can say is, here we are, well, the masters of the you. Oh, no, the princes of the universe. I can't even princes get the song right. Princes of the universe, here we belong. <laughs> the movie originally opens with one of the biggest movie stars on the planet, 
Like, what the fuck? Jamie Lee Curtis is, is Buckaroo Banzai's mom, and they just cut her out of the movie. It's so wild to me. Like, if anything, I'm like, can we get another Buckaroo Banzai movie or a TV show or something just so we can use that footage of young Jamie Lee Curtis? Like, come on. That's the thing, because she was, at that time, uh, married to Mike Riva, who is uh, the, uh, oh, was he the uh, visual designer? Oh, God, what is art? Ah, I forget the, the title. Um, but J. Michael Revo was, did a ton of movies. It was brilliant at, uh, at his job as essentially defining the look of films. And, um, they were married. And so she was like, yeah, I'd love to be in this picture. This sounds like fun. Again, it, a lot of this comes back to this sense of fun. There's, there's this unique, um, I mean, actually, if you look at the interviews in the Blu-ray edition, uh, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the shout factory, um, edition of uh, Buckaroo Banzai, you will see the people really coming back to that sense of being won over by the film because of its sense of fun. There was no rational reason to do it. They didn't do it because they're like, they read the script and understood it and went, aha, this is my moment to shine. It was more like, aha, these are people I really want to work with. Right. Yeah. And I think so much of that just goes down to the people being involved being not assholes. Buckaroo Banzai was produced, the movie came out, and was a horrible failure. Act 3. Pure evil from beyond the eighth dimension. Which is my favorite line in the movie. When he comes in, when, when, when... Buckaroo Banzai runs in. He's like, pure evil from beyond the eighth dimension. I get I get excited every time. There's like a very specific quality to Peter Weller, like screaming or like yelling in pain. It's like this very distinct thing. And it's like whenever whenever he gets whenever he's getting killed by the by Clarence Bodiger and all the rest of the gangsters at the beginning, the Jesus Christ moment and Robocop. And in this, whenever he's being tortured with the electricity and then whenever he screams this, there's like this very specific way of like, it's like it's Peter Weller's acting is like it's like it's it's hard to be defined. It's like bordering on like kind of like wooden and like untrained, but it has this like weird sincerity to it that and like those two things the dichotomy between those two things, whenever he's like yelling in pain or anguish or like yelling in excitement or whatever, it's like, you can't quite feel like you, if, if you feel like it's really good or like really cheesy and it like, it's just, it's it just, that, that has like this, this great quality to it that, that nobody else can do. It's been said before that Buckaroo Banzai is like a mind map of the inside of Mac's head, but it's only a corner and you get the, didn't, and you get the distinct impression that there's a whole picture that would make sense if you could just get more context. If there had just been an Against the World Crime League feature film, or maybe two more Buckaroo Banzai adventures, maybe we would have really understood what the whole thing was. But we'll never really get that. The closest thing that we're going to get to a true sequel, if anything, to explain the catacomb that is Buckaroo Banzai to the legion of ravenous fans, is the Buckaroo Banzai novelization that Earl Mac Roush wrote. And here is the introduction of the novelization read by our own Andrew Price. How time changes everything. 
By a decision of fate, I was thinking of this as Buckaroo Banzai, and I sat swapping wonderful stories one night, and it was not long before he turned to me and said, Why don't you collect a volume of our adventures together, Reno? Could we collect many together? I asked excitedly. As many as the book will hold, he assured me, and I immediately set about to plan details. But which stories? To this end, I turn to you, my flying squad of youthful readers and the conscience of honest people everywhere who have imposed on me the strictest moral principles in my actions and sustained me in conditions that surpass the imagination. When I say you are the supreme authority to whom I resort, it is in joy at feeling your loyalty and high sentiments of duty. You are my church, my thunder, who never fail to remove every stone from my path. It is for you to show the way. Thanks to your overwhelming messages of support, there will be a book of new stories, hopefully many of them, in the near future. But for now, many of you have hard-pressed me to reprint in narrative form the torturous path traveled by the creature Dr. Emilio Lizardo, supreme dictator of Planet 10, from his lost corner of hell in the 8th dimension to his miracle return to the land of the living. In effect, the volume you are holding in your hands at this very moment. The fact that Lizardo's wild plan nearly succeeded had, as we know now, at a hard moment, the most dramatic of my life, the world stood still, all but lost, and would have been but for one man, whose name is on my lips. Why don't you collect another volume of stories, Reno? Yes, I will, and soon. As Buckaroo Banzai is fond of stating, each must give as much as he can afford of the three T's, time, treasure, and talent, in order to serve others, with the active assistance of many others. I have been kept busy remounting this little volume and now bring it to you post-haste. Uh, so... Like I was saying pre- previously, Pepe Serna and Mac hit it out, hit it off, uh, you know, while shooting the movie. And according to Pepe, that's the reason why after the movie and its initial release, the character of Reno Nevada is, is kind of the, the character that Mac latches onto more so than Buckaroo in, in some places. Like in your in World Watch One, Dan, you um, have received actual correspondence from Reno that is definitely not Earl MacRoush writing in character, but it's real correspondence from the character Reno. Exactly. Um, I can see that being a thing for certain. Absolutely. Um, Mac actually does pull a lot from the world around him from um, what other people are discussing and what he's talking about with people. Uh, and if, if he takes a, a shine to someone or to an idea, um, and it doesn't have to necessarily originate with him. He'll run with it, um, which is kind of a nice thing. Actually, um, Reno did that. No, it wasn't. Well, I guess it wouldn't have been Reno. Reno authorized the interview, but that happened the last issue with uh, uh, Mrs. Johnson's interview uh, with uh, Sean Murphy, uh, one of our staffers, and uh, and Mrs. Johnson in Japan. Um, that was something that Sean kind of pitched as a sort of, well, you know, how do, how do we make this conversation work? How do we add this to the, an issue that's about this character and uh, threw some out the ideas out there and they mutated, but they were there, you know? Um, so that's, it's, it's, that's kind of the fun of the newsletter too. And of the universe of Bucker is that you do get to have your, your, your fingers in it, massaging it a little bit. Uh, and it, it shakes your hand back in return, which is kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that you're able to get actual interviews with these real people of Reno, Nevada, and Mrs. Johnson, and so on and so forth, that are totally real interviews. I I love that. Like I when I found the when I found those sections in the various zines, I was I was like 
I, I was already into it because I, I'm just obsessed with Mac, like, as a writer. Like, I'm really fascinated by him and also how fucking hard it is to get in contact with him. Like, I don't know why, but I it took me, f- like, two years of hunting around trying to find his email address or, or a way to contact him to just ask you guys, like, hey, you've done this. How do you get, how'd you get his contact? Because I wanted, I wanted originally the idea of why I reached out to him was, or out to you, wasn't actually even to do this thing with the podcast with you and your insight on Mac. It was originally, I'm working on a book that is influenced by him and I was going to have like a fake interview in the back. I mean, it wasn't going to be a fake interview. It was going to be a real interview, but where I was going to take his answers and then apply them to a character in the universe of the book. And uh, ultimately, this thing that we landed on this conversation now is cooler because it's we're going to actually I get to know so much more about one of my favorite movies. Um, But I'm 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 just so enthralled by the fact that he and Rick are so intertwined with the zine. Like, I don't I can't think of many, maybe any other pieces of media where the creators are so like. We're like, whatever, 30 years later, and Mac is still writing in-universe stuff that you can go and find and be like, what the fuck? There's an entire interview with Reno talking about the pandemic or whatever? Like, this is so weird. Yeah. No, and what's funny for me, and well, it's kind of sad, too, is that people, not as many people, I think, recognize that that's actually going on as should, I guess, is the best way of putting it. Um, You know, I, I... I think it, the, the scenes, generally speaking, can be hard to interface with because you just don't know what you're getting, you know? Um, and so I think that a lot kind of gets, um, in terms of a readership, it could, it's pretty good. I mean, it's not that we're suffering, but it's one of those things where it's sort of like, oh, I know there's so many more people who, would, if they knew what they were missing, would just be like, oh, it's more actual Buckaroo Banzai, you know? Um, and that, that's kind of why you do it too. I mean, it's, it's like in the absence of a, of a larger property forming over time, you get to that point. It's sort of like, what, what can you do? And, um, to get a yes from the people who actually made the property to begin with is just astounding to me. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. So thank you for enjoying that because that's the whole reason we do it. Absolutely. So the next thing that I just wanted to briefly discuss is this idea that, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people online talking about the fact that Big Trouble, Big Trouble in Little China was written by W.D. Richter and that it has a lot of similarities to Buckaroo Banzai in that it's kind of got a, you know, this buffoon character, uh, it's got this, uh, fascination with Asian culture, um, albeit slightly better handled in Big Trouble in Little China, um, but also still has the Orientalist in air quotes, you know, yellow panic in air quotes villain. Um, uh, I'm curious if, if you've ever talked with Rick or, uh, if we'd talk with Rick about, if he envisioned Big Trouble as kind of like a side against the World Crime League, or if it was just, it was a very similar, it was, it, or if it wasn't that, it was just similar territory and he was able to kind of mine the same vein without literally doing it, you know? Um, I think, well, okay, so I did not personally, but uh, Steve Matson, in the guise of another character in the, uh, in the newsletter did interview him and he categorically says, no, any, any resemblance is merely, um, you know, 
uh, a matter of you kind of reading things into what's actually going on there. Um, I think that something that has to be remembered, um, and I remember it well growing up in the 80s, was a certain sort of fascination with Asia in American culture and vice versa. I mean, you can see there's a certain cultural dialogue going on, but at the same time, they're somewhat isolated from each other, which is kind of funny. They still see each other as being a big mystery, but at the same time, they're very interested in sort of incorporating pieces of the other culture into themselves and digesting them and figuring out what that means. And I think Buckaroo is a, um, is a product of that to a certain extent. And I think that Big Trouble in Little China is too. Certainly the fascination with Kung Fu movies that came up in the seventies, the filmmakers who saw those are like, I'm going to make an action fiction or action picture. And it's going to be a Kung Fu movie. I mean, that was, that there was some fun things that you could do there with a, you know, better production values, a bigger budget and a, and a Hollywood that was now 10, 15 years older. Um, so even to further your point, the big trouble in little China was like, was like rushed to get done so that it could come out at the same time or before the golden child, which is like another movie. That's like very similar. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that, I mean, there were a whole series of those. There's like, well, I remember, um, uh, the last dragon was a actually an African-American Kung Fu movies, I think set in the Bronx or in, um, no, it was in New York city. Uh, I'm one of the bros. And, um, you know, again, it's this sort of idea, sort of like, let's take that Asian component and sort of explore it in American terms, um, you know, in a, in a straight, you know, in a much less Asian way. It was very much more sort of like, how do we make this more uh, American and, and flavor to a certain extent, but also have that sort of Asian component in there in terms of the culture and how we're, we're trying to sort it out as an artistic enterprise. So, yeah, it's there a lot. The Buckaroo Banzai train seemed to be slowly running out of steam over the course of the next decade. However, in 1998, fans of the Banzai Institute were given a new hope, a new TV show titled Buckaroo Banzai Ancient Secrets and New Mysteries was put into development. And now we're going to watch the test footage from the show. I'm, I'm assuming you've, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm assuming you've seen this a bunch, Dan. Oh, you're, yeah, you're talking about the Jack Carr trailer? Yeah, yep. I, prior to uh, prior to doing all of this research, I had heard about it, but I'd never actually seen this CG trailer. And uh, it low-key blew me away. I was like, whoa, this is a thing. <laughs> I was expecting just like a shitty animatic, which it kind of is, but you know, cameras like crazy raking across a bunch of grass. So the camera is like raking across this grass and then we pull back and reveal a crop uh, crop sign, whatever the fuck those things are called, but it's the Buckaroo Banzai Institute logo. Oh man, this music though. Yeah, this is the original music they put to it. A bunch of uh, electric cables going into a bunch of weird techno boxes. We're tracking across them and lead up to this giant solar satellite dish thing that shoots out a giant laser and goes into outer space. Was this, so the thing I'm unclear about is, is this, was this proof of concept stuff for a live action show or for an animated show? It would have been for live action. So this was, um, this wasn't even test footage. This is really to promote the uh, pitch sessions for the uh, show to various studios. Gotcha, gotcha. Man, and fucking, the fucking car drives through a mountain like it's want to do usually. Now this part is interesting because this was originally uh, taken from a, 
uh, an episode of Thunderbirds that was uh, produced back in the 1960s, the concept for it, where there's this uh, space plane or uh, you know advanced aircraft that can't land because the, uh, the nose gear is down. And so they get a vehicle to come along and rescue the um, shuttle, or in, in that case, the plane uh, from crashing. I can't really imagine this, like the scale of this is so huge. I can't imagine this on a, a 1998 TV budget. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, I don't know. Trek was doing pretty well at that point. Yeah, but most of most of Star Trek from the Berman era is just like guys standing in rooms going, we cannot do this morally efficable thing. Look at this. Oh my God, this guy's got a forehead. Look how weird his forehead is. I just remember the music being not as good as I'd like, except for the Borg episodes from early on, but anyway. You know, it's funny, speaking of talking about, like, having these cool characters and that are being played by these really good actors that just have nothing to do, and that's kind of funny. Uh, it's the same thing that, Same thing goes for the, the, the jet car, because it's like... You know that 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 animatic or that proof of concept or whatever whatever kind of like promises what that could be, which is like, you know, it, it's like the franchise's DeLorean or whatever, where it's you know he's he's going on adventures, he's running around, he's like going through mountains with it, and it's like this recurring thing. But in Buckaroo Banzai, it's used once and then it's just never used again. They're just like we can drive through through mountains and then just like they never do it again. Oh, yeah. Actually, it's kind of funny because the last memory I really have of the jet car is when it's kind of sputtering at the end and you hear it kind of the engine knock at the very end of the jet car run. It's like, huh, it's kind of a sad end to that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ultimately, though, uh, our, 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 our old friend Beagleman didn't want this TV show to go through. So uh, he, he put the kibosh on it. Um, the other thing that I'm, I'm not clear about, and there was a, there's a pilot written that Ma- Mac wrote that got turned into a Moonstone comic. Was that pilot script this or was that pilot? Okay. Yeah. And actually the thing that, uh, Beagleman was actually dead by the time that ancient secrets and new, new mysteries came around, which is, uh, the one that he put the kibosh on was, um, was uh oh god when that came out i would have been about 1986 and that was heroes in trouble oh okay, okay. yeah and that was the one that was uh was def- uh, max headroom basically won that battle against those pilots um but yeah uh the there were two drafts of the uh fox script for ancient secrets and new mysteries the first one actually i liked better um, but, uh, Fox was like, no, you've got to kind of strip some stuff away. There's too much going on in this. People are going to get confused. Sound familiar. And so, um, they, I wouldn't say dumbed it down, but they definitely made it sharper, uh, and more concise in, in a lot of respects as far as subplots and so forth. And the, and the, that show, basically the, the pilot, if I'm remembering correctly, is it's Hanoi Jan, right? Or no, it's Lizardo. It's, Li- oh, Okay. Yeah, what happens is that um, Hanoi Shan and Lazardo uh, kind of join forces, and uh, it, basically Lazardo is trying to signal an army to either take over. I know he's actually trying to steer the planet Earth back to Planet Ten, so he's actually turned the entire uh, uh, planet into a spaceship and is now flying it towards Planet Ten. 
And uh, he's basically hijacking it. And Hanoi Shen is holding the earth in ransom saying, if you don't pay me up, you know, this thing's going to Planet 10 and we're not coming back. Um, I think that was the gist of the plot of that one. Gotcha. Um, did you, uh, I'm assuming you've read the, the Moonstone stuff? Yeah, I actually wrote um, the, uh, some of the bonus materials for that. Look at you. That was, <laughs> that was such a, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's great, man. That's, that's so cool. Um, what was, uh, what was working with Moonstone like? Oh, it, it was a great experience. Uh, Joe Gentile is a, is a great guy. And, um, you know, he was uh, very interested in input and he was uh very excited about the idea that, well, hey, we've got people who've actually been had their hands in, in this and know what's going on and can give me content and I can pay them in comic books. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that's that's the way these gigs go. So it's sort of like, no, it's a credit, but, you know, I, I was paid in comic books. Yeah. I've I've definitely worked for comics before. I, I, I was going to say it's not uncommon. I'm, I have no shame in that. From here, things laid a little quiet on the Buckaroo Banzai front until Kevin Smith became known as the Buckaroo Banzai Fan-in-Chief, which is bullshit. I'm nominating you, Dan, for the Buckaroo Banzai Fan-in-Chief. No, you can't nominate me. I've already said uh, Blade Runner is my favorite film. You've got to actually nominate Rick and Mac. They are the number one fans. I mean, especially Rick. I mean... I think that's not fair to say that he's a fan. He's not a fan. He's the he's the he's the 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 creator. He is, but he is also the number one fan. I mean, the reason the whole reason Buckaroo got made is because he was a fan of Max writing. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, and with good reason. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, From here, uh, rumblings of a new Buckaroo Bonsai TV show started happening, and then uh, it, it was it was. From here, rumblings of a new Buckaroo Banzai TV show started happening. Uh, it was going to be written by Kevin Smith and supposedly was moving along swimmingly when it came out that Mac and Rick weren't involved and also might own the rights to it. This was really confusing to me as someone who had been following the Buckaroo Banzai story from 2004. In that original newsletter interview, I got the distinct impression that Things were up in the air, that the contracts had been lost. It was very difficult to know what the rights issues with Buckaroo were. And I think that that's true to an extent, but there was obviously enough there that at a certain point, Rick and Mac could raise their hands and go, uh, excuse me, but technically that part wasn't purchased by MGM or by uh, David Beagleman or 20th Century Fox, whoever was, owned it. So that was confusing to me. And this has been an adventure ever since. So please continue. It seems like the crux of this entire thing. Uh, and Dave, I don't know if you want me to read the article or I can, I've read the article so I can kind of maybe just more sum, sum, summarize them. Yeah. But, but, but basically, you know, w- once this was, once this, this show had been announced uh, and uh, Rick and Mac kind of stepped forward and were like, you know, that we we own this you you can't do this because we we own this and then MGM said no we own it the the central argument is that MGM says that they own Buckaroo Banzai wholesale and that they had hired um Rick and Mac as work for hire to write and produce this movie 
So they essentially bought the 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 rights or the the they they bought the 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 franchise or or whatever the the IP of Buckaroo Banzai, and then Rick and Mac were working as or Rat Mac was working as a work for hire to write the script. So they essentially sold an idea to them and then were hired as work for hire to execute that idea. Um, but what uh, Rick and Mac say is that. They had this idea for this franchise, this universe, their, their Buckaroo Banzai MCU, their cinematic universe of all these different stories. And they had the sampler and they had all the scripts and MGM was not interested in any of that. They didn't want to buy any of that stuff. They simply bought the script for the movie that was made. Well, they didn't even do that. They just hired Mac to take that story. They bought the story and then hired him to create a script from it. Yeah. So they, so the, the central crux of the argument is you didn't buy Buckaroo Banzai. You didn't buy any of this universe, any of these characters. You just bought that movie that we made and do not own the rights to the Buckaroo Banzai, the Buckaroo Banzai franchise or IP. And a lot of that is based on the way that the um, contract was structured and written. You know, the specific legal language was sort of the fulcrum for that argument, if I remember correctly. And um, I don't know if anybody to this day knows how that, that's been resolved or if it has been. It would be a curious thing if it hasn't been by now. And the fact that it's been so quiet, it's purely speculation, but I would speculate that somewhere along the line, a settlement was probably at least proposed. Um, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen with any of that or if any of that actually happened. So in the meantime, this is just kind of more, here we are, let's sit and wait and see what happens. Which leads us to the next kind of data point on this, which is that. Oh, and by, and also just a little addendum. So, uh, you know, obviously being a huge fan of the movie and the uh, the creators, uh, the moment that this Hollywood Reporter article had come out talking about this, Kevin Smith quit. He was just like, I'm not I'm not being involved in this whatsoever, um, which, uh, you know, I what I, 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 I got to say that maybe a maybe a Buckaroo Banzai show helmed by Chris Kevin Smith could have been cool, but kind of feel like we dodged a bullet there. <laughs> would he get it wouldn't he get it would there be bratsies i don't i i personally i like a lot of kevin smith's work um but i like kevin smith when he makes kevin smith things not when he does the you know 65th you know xerox version of earl mac roush like why not just have mac do it like he's you if if mac is still alive and wants to do it he should be the one to do it otherwise it's not really even a conversation for me. Um, that being said, if, the, if that being said, if there comes a time where in the future, maybe everyone isn't still up to do things, they just want to, you know, have their little uh, siesta in the sun, whatever, you know, a little retirement, uh, and they want to collect a passive executive producer credit. Get at me, baby. I'm down to write some Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, it's kind of funny. Oh, who did, uh, I should know this. Uh, who did uh, the original? Um uh, Walking Dead. Uh, the comic or the show? Show. Frank Darabont. Yeah, Darabont. Darabont did a script for the um, for a proposed Buckaroo Banzai series. It's one of the kind of get- Yes, back in like 2004, I want to say. If you look at the uh, Ain't It Cool News uh, 
you know, archives of old, you will see this blip where for a hot second, Darabont had written a script and had proposed uh, doing a series. And um, we've been looking for that sucker forever now <laughs> because they're like, wow, what the hell was that? And we still haven't found it yet. Um, but the white whale. Yes, it is a, exactly. I am Ahab, baby. It's like we were <laughs> tracking to the ends of the earth. No, we haven't gone that crazy yet. Um, but yeah, it, it's that's why the newsletter keeps going. It's like every time you thought you've got to that dead end, something weird happens, and there's something to go looking at. Yeah, I've never even I never even heard of that. I, I had no idea that that was a thing. Yeah, so it's it's interesting though that the everything's kind of deadlocked and that's kind of the end of the line for a while. And then just recently, um, which was shocking to me, uh, dark horse comics announced that they're publishing a novel called Buckaroo Banzai against the world crime league, which is a sequel novel written by Earl Macrouch. I mean, uh, told to Earl Macrouch by Reno, Nevada, uh, which also is now on the cover of the book. He's, he's credited as, uh, the Reno kid, Reno, the kid. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, well, and he's gone through a couple of different incarnations. He was uh, Reno of Memphis for a while, Reno, Nevada, Reno, the kid. Um, but yeah, we were not surprised. We had actually been teasing this for a while. And if people were sharp eyed viewers of the, the newsletter, they or the, the zine, they would have seen it coming. Um, and shame on you all for missing it. But no, um, but it's uh, it, it's exciting for us because we really did have, a, like I was talking about earlier, this panicky moment back in the mid 2000 uh, like teens. We're sort of like, what else do we do? And every, every, you know, and there was a long sort of drought. And now there are these gifts that seem to be popping up left and right. And it's really sort of uh, creating inspiration within the, the staff in the sense that like, well, wow, now that that's actually happening, I'm suddenly much more invested and excited. And, uh, you know, I, I'm beginning to make connections that I wasn't making before because uh, the investment is there. And I can only imagine that fandom is going to be going through an even larger sort of cycle of that coming up soon. Who knows what that might or might not do for a television series, hopefully, you know, if it's possible, it'd be really nice to get that little nudge that uh, gets it over the uh, that hump that it seems never to get over. Yeah, I I am cautiously optimistic, but also I it's, it's interesting because honestly, this novel is kind of all I want. Like, I don't need I mean, I would love I would love a TV show. That'd be great. But I kind of don't even really need that. Like, this is what I want. The The Mac to write this thing where it's fully his vision and really exploring it like it'd be cool if it turned into more than just this novel if there was a whole series of pulp novels written by him about like that'd be so cool well and i mean already the um if i remember correctly when this went out live on amazon as far as a uh, pre-order uh, it became number one in its category um instantaneously pretty much so I have a feeling that uh, Dark Horse has all the impetus that they need to continue forward with more books. You know, they, I, I have a feeling they've already made their nut, which is, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that, that bodes well. Um, 
Yeah, I'd be I'd be I'd be lying if I if I said anything other than as soon as that announcement happened, I immediately emailed my Dark Horse editor and was like, "You know that I'm a huge Buckaroo Bonsai fan, right? If you guys do comics, like I I have to be involved. Like I have to." <laughs> just just let me scribble on it a little bit somewhere. Please, just let me do it. Please, come on. Just color a page. Something, give me something, man. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm so excited for this new Buckaroo Bonsai novel. And, uh, and, and it, it can't get here soon enough. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that it exists. I'm so happy that, or, or you know, Mac is the one writing it. I'm, I, it's, I'm just over the moon. I, yes, <laughs> I, there are no words, honestly. I mean, it, it's been fun to have those little snippets that we've been able to put in where we can, but to get a larger narrative, I mean, that's, yeah, that's what we're, we're living for here, man. Absolutely. I agree. Um, you know, in, in closing, uh, I, 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 Andrew and I talk about this idea of like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really obsessed with the, the, the B movie actor, Robert Zadar. Um, he was in Maniac Cop and a bunch of kind of B science fiction movies. And he had this, this, uh, ailment called cherubism where his body thought that his face was deficient in calcium. So it packed calcium onto his lower jaw. And so over, over the course of his life, his face like extended. Um, and it's, it's, I'm obsessed with him. I love, I love him as, and he's not even a particularly good actor, but I, but I just love the fact that somebody would be, would have this burden thrust upon them and then choose to judo flip it into a positive and, and make, their make it their instrument and and bring joy to people i just love i love the fact that he ventured forth boldly against what i'm sure was everyone in his life being like really dude you're gonna go be an actor and there's an there's an element of that with this movie where you know i I always say that if 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 i die with one person giving a shit about me the way i give a shit about robert zadar i've won and I, I feel like the goal for me would be to make something as weird and fucked up and broken and great and conventionally not successful as Buckaroo Banzai. I just think it's a shining example of unmitigated creativity and a pure expression of creative enthusiasm. And I, I, I love it so much. That's why we do the news or the, uh, zine i i hesitate i kind of vacillate between calling it a newsletter and a fanzine because i'm not sure what it is anymore um but yeah i mean i think that everybody who's attracted to it is attracted to the film to a certain extent at least because they recognize that they have had a similar torturous path in life it's not that it's not been easy or it's been hard but they've they've been kind of weird (laughs) they've been kind of a little bit alien and um, Buckaroo has made that cool. That's, I think, what, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But that's really, I think, really attracted me to the entire universe is that here's this guy who has tremendous uh, intellectual curiosity, is a total nerd, but is also a rocker and a jet car driver. And so there are no boundaries there. You don't have to be just defined by the label nerd. As a matter of fact, um, Buckaroo speaks to the idea of labeling as a disservice to humanity, you know, putting labels on people. Um, the point is that we all have the capacity to kind of be curious about the world around us and just go for it. 
um, and have fun with it and not be too worried about what that label is. Uh, that's, that's what I think is the best thing about Buckaroo. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've told this story multiple times on this very podcast uh, for various reasons. And every time you get weirdly offended by it, I get offended. Yeah. Uh, whenever I was when I was a kid, uh, you know, and I think this is not this is not uh, unique to me. It's I think probably a fairly common experience for a lot of kids growing up in the 90s that are into movies. I sort of cut my teeth on um getting into weird cinema uh kind of in the in the video in the in the video store aisles uh and and also uh kind of just like sitting and watching cable HBO and Cinemax and stuff like that just sitting watching movies that would come on cable uh but 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 the but the I think the biggest chunk of it was just going to the video store and essentially just you know, going through the aisles and just renting more and more weird stuff as I just ran out of the more mainstream things. Once you run out of the, you know, you've rent, you've watched all the, you know, kind of most well-known movies, then you start renting the weirder and weirder stuff. And, you know, you kind of, you, you, you're going through the aisles, pouring over these VHS boxes and you're kind of renting movies and watching them just based on covers. Like you're just seeing like movie covers and maybe reading the back of the box. Um, and I, I come from a very specific experience of my, my grandparents owned a grocery store and we had a, we had a video aisle and I would hang out in this grocery store all the time when I was a kid. Um, and I would just, I would just literally pour over these, these these VHS boxes like before I even watched the movies when I wasn't when I was like too young to get these movies like I, I, I'm like intimately familiar with like the cover of Dead Alive like before I ever years before I ever watched the movie I would just sit there and like stare at it um, and like Silence of the Lambs and all these movies and then eventually started renting them and uh, Buckaroo Banzai was one of those movies that I that I you know um, I, I found it and I was attracted to it solely based off of the cover that, that one sheet for Buckaroo Banzai is just a really cool looking cover, rented it, watched it. Um, I, I, I kind of have trouble parsing out my, when I watched it as a kid versus when I watched it again years later. Uh, I definitely loved it when I watched it again years later. I kind of don't really remember how I felt about it when I was a kid. I, I, I think I liked it, but I, but I, I kind of, I can't even remember watching it. I just remember getting it really. Um, but I, but I got the movie. I watched it. And from that point on, I developed a trick where when I would go to the movie, uh, when I would go to the video store, I would go and I, you could only, you could only get three movies. So I would, I would find a bunch of movies that I wanted to get and I would get the three. And if there was any movies that I wanted, but I couldn't get them because of the limit, but I didn't want anybody else to get them and have them rented out for when I came back next. I would always put them behind Buckaroo Banzai because I knew that nobody was looking behind that movie. Like I was, I was literally the only person in that, in the history of that video store that ever rented that movie. I guarantee it. So it became my go-to. That was my secret hiding place for any movie that I just wanted to like, stow away for future reference i kept it behind buckaroo bonsai and uh that that's that's kind of a funny story that i've told on the podcast but it it also kind of has a, a secondary thing where you know that there there was like there was power 
and a, and a weird sense of belonging that you get from going to the movies, the video store and finding these weird little gems that like are like a secret to you. Like, you know that like nobody else you're you're like my parents would not have known what the fuck was going on with buckaroo bonsai like they wouldn't have understood that my my even my friends and my cousins like no nobody like under like nobody got nobody would get that movie and i'm not trying to say that in a way of like i was smarter than everybody else but like it was just my own little like chunk of like this is this is mine and it's nobody else's um, and not in like a gatekeeping way. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm really against like gatekeeping of like, oh, like this, this is only for like people who are in the know, like normies aren't going to get this or whatever. But as a kid, it, it was less of a like, I'm gatekeeping. It was more of a like, without a sense of belonging and without feeling like I was sort of welcomed into certain groups and I couldn't relate to a lot of people in certain ways. It was like my refuge. Um, and I, and Buckaroo Banzai just, it represented like the, the pinnacle of that for me, where of all the movies that I sort of carved out as these weird little hidden secrets that I had, it was like that movie was like the, the deepest dive into that, that I could, that I had. And obviously then, you know, there are way more obscure movies than Buckaroo Banzai. Buckaroo Banzai is like a pretty big cult hit. But at the time when I was a kid, that was like, the weirdest, deepest dive you could get into like your own little slice of the universe. And I, and I, I think about that a lot. I, and it's funny because that is almost a bigger aspect of it than the movie itself for me. Like I said, I don't even remember watching the movie really when I was a kid. I remember watching it later on and I definitely love the film, but the experience of discovering it and it being like this special little thing is almost a bigger part of it than the movie itself for me. Yeah. That's almost the, um, the paradox of the film is sort of like, I think that uh, when Rick and Mac were making it, especially Rick, um, he definitely wanted it to interface with other people. But I think that there was a part of them that knew that only a certain number of people were going to get it. And so he was, he was definitely making it the best movie that he uh, could make collaboratively because he was very dead set on making sure that people were participating in the making of that film, that it wasn't just him, you know, telling people, you go over there and now you walk in on on cue, you know, it was him very much sort of getting everybody invested in it. Um, But at the same time, I think he knew that he got um, incredibly lucky to a certain extent and sort of like, I don't know how many other people are going to get this because I really like this. And I know that the stuff that I like doesn't necessarily mean that everybody else is going to like it. You know, I think that, um, Sometimes wonderful things happen because of that. And this was one of them. Uh, and also just as a quick aside, we, we, we didn't talk about this, but just to quickly uh, cover the, the watermelon scene. Oh, that, oh, <laughs> you want the, the fake story or the real story on that one? I mean, both there, there's, there's a, there's like a, there's a canon like explanation for the watermelon scene in universe. And then there's a real story of why the watermelon scene existed. I think I think both are interesting. Yeah, I want to say, if I remember correctly, the fake one was that it was undergoing pressure testing because the Bonsai Institute was trying to make a food delivery system um, to uh, to places that were either war torn or um, experiencing famine. 
Um, and so you could actually get these high density watermelons that would survive an airdrop and would bounce down and they, they would actually have some sort of protein package inside, um, you know, like a chicken, which is where the chicken and the watermelon uh, article might have come from uh, in one of our newsletters, which act- was begotten by the, uh, the Easter egg in the DVD. And just for, con- just for context, so what we're talking about is there's a scene in the movie um, if, if you haven't seen it or if you just forget and you haven't seen it in a while in the middle of an, like an action scene, a chase scene, um, Pepe Serna and, and Jeff Goldblum, New Jersey and Reno, uh, they're, they're running through rooms with guns drawn and they run through this little like con- this little like machinery room with a bunch of which a bunch with a bunch of like running equipment and things. And there's just like a, a watermelon like stuffed into this piece of machinery. And just in the middle of this action scene of just people chasing around and shooting guns at each other and trying to catch and catch each other. And they're basically trying to find um, they're trying to find uh, Penny, who's yeah, who's been kidnapped and and she has the, 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 the thrust over thruster. They run through this room and get Jeff Goldblum just says, why is there a watermelon there? And Pepe Cerna just goes, uh, I'll tell you later. And then we, they run out of the room. The movie just continues on and they never reference it again. It, it's just it, it's never brought up again. And the real reason why that probably happened was because by this time, uh, Beagleman had made a huge fuss about Buckaroo wearing glasses in scenes. Um, I'm not going to go over the whole, uh, long, you know, I would go to the shout factory DVD. I would pull up the Blu-rays, uh, or not the DVD. Well, actually, I guess no, it's on the Blu-ray, um, because there's a Blu-ray and a DVD in there. Uh, the Blu-ray has the film and the documentary, go to the documentary and it will actually have an interview with, uh, Richter about the whole glasses scene, which is ridiculous. It's basically, uh, Beagleman threatening to shut down the production based on how many times Buckaroo wears a pair of glasses. Um, it came to a point where Beagleman would complain and complain and complain, and then suddenly it stopped. And so as a test, uh, Richter, well, I guess actually Michael Riva had found all these watermelons uh, like on the way into sentence, like, hey, we could use these as some sort of prop or something. And they decided to put one of them in the scene to see if Beagleman was still checking dailies because the whole thing has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the film. And it was so weird that they figured if Beagleman doesn't get back to us with some sort of horrible stink about this scene that we've shot, he's probably not checking dailies anymore. And sure enough, they didn't hear anything about it. So they left it in and uh, they knew at that point that they could just kind of keep going carte blanche and uh, do, you know, make the film that they were finally wanting to make and able to make uh, rather than have to fight Beagleman at every turn. He finally collapsed, given up. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, Dan, where uh, where can people find you on the internets, my dude? Um, they can uh, probably on Facebook, but I don't know if I want them to. No, I'm just. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm a little shy sometimes. Uh, I would say the best place to find me would be to find the newsletter. The best places to find the newsletter are at the Buckaroo Banzai uh, frequently asked questions page, run by Figment, who is also known as Sean Murphy in real life. Um. You can also find it at uh, World Watch Online, uh, which is run by uh, a gentleman named Arclight, Chris Wake. 
there's also actually a World Watch One um, Facebook page. So you can look up the World Watch One Facebook page. You'll see Penny Pretty um, on the on the cover of that page and click like and, and have at it. So that's probably the best way to find me. Find the newsletter. Well, on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com where you can find comics like Star Trek, Seven's Reckoning, uh, Fuck Off Squad, Action Hospital, all kinds of other stuff. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me wherever I am because there I am. And you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. It's a uh, future Philip Dickian comic about a robot detective living in a dystopian future society. Um, you can also uh, get uh, Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency patches, official Deep Cuts shoulder patches from my website or Dave's or deepcutspod.com on our official Deep Cuts store. Let's start recording this. I can't believe we struck such a lucrative licensing deal. Can't believe that our podcast is going to be played on the actual radio. Yeah, we got a real sweetheart deal, too. We just have to drive around to these individual radio stations and re-record every episode at each individual station. Oh, oh, it's airtime. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, let's do this, baby. And... Oh, God. What was that? Hey, guys, guys, in here. Look look out, everybody. Oh, Jesus. Ah, look like, whoa, look who just crashed into the studio and knocked over a couple chairs. I'll be a monkey boy's uncle if it's not the Reno Kid and Pinky Carruthers. I almost didn't recognize you guys without your hats and bandanas. Hey, man, don't sweat it. That's cool. I almost didn't recognize you either, Alex. Uh, that's because uh, he's not Alex, Reno. Sorry, most nights were across the hall, but... I. Thought this was the Alex Jones show. We're looking for Alex. Ah, uh, gotcha. No, no, no. I'm I'm Dave, uh, and he's Andrew, and and we're we're filling in tonight because, well, uh, to be honest, Alex Jones got wind that you guys were in the building and decided to take a personal day to study other opportunities, whatever that means. Opportunities. Para pendejo no se estudia. Yeah, his coffee cup's still warm, too. Be that as it may, what brings you guys out tonight? As opposed to fighting to save Mother Earth from the Electroid Mothership? Not to mention the World Crime League? Yeah, funny you should mention it. Pinky Carruthers here, going through Alex's garbage. We found his name on a bunch of World Crime League documents. Including a 100-year personal management contract with high noise. A hundred years? Wow. Alex may be Electroid, or else Zahn shared the secret of immortality in exchange for Alex's loyalty. That's why we need to ask him some questions, especially seeing how we made him so nervous he bailed his ass out of here in the middle of his own show, right? <laughs> Probably afraid we'd hand him his ass. I mean, that's right. I mean, that's what you Cavaliers do best, right? Hand people their asses. And by the looks of you guys, you're both packing heat. I sure hope not, though, because, you know, guns really aren't allowed in here. Come on, guys. Let's let's be responsible before I... You gonna pat down the Reno kid, Dave? And Pinky frickin' Carruthers? Dude, let's watch him try it, right? Man, oh man, you guys are funny. Haven't lost a step. But as long as you're here, why not pull up a chair? Can we get you fellas anything to drink? 
Pinky Carruthers here. I'm gonna see what's in Alex's refrigerator. Reno, uh, what, what are you having? Oh my God. Oh my, oh my God, is, is that real? Oh, I, I need a doggy bag. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I got wind of that. I'll have the Jack Daniels Sinatra Select. Yeah, and I'm going to have me a Pepsi with real sugar on it. <laughs> the Sinatra Select? Wow, that's kind of pricey. But hey, I'll, I'll I'll send somebody out. Hillsmer? Hillsmer? Uh, Sinatra Select, please? So uh, just chill, you guys, and, and spend some time, you know, with uh, with us on the radio, with, with your listening fans out there in Alex land or, you know, the real world. <laughs> Dude, did you say real world? Sure, Pinky. What's wrong? Hey, Reno, did we somehow pass through the eighth dimension or something? Santos puta madre. Last thing I remember, we were power washing the, the jet car and Buckaroo gave us the spare key to cue up the oscillation overthruster. Yeah, that's right. You were cleaning the headlights when my knee knocked the jet brake and we started to roll. You ran to jump in the cockpit and accidentally triggered the ramjet and we rocketed right off the cliff, man, rolling over and over and over there. And directly down straight through the earth into hell itself. Damn right. What? What? Wait, 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 wait. Hey, hold your horses here. What, what radio station is this? Uh, this is uh, XWCL Clear Channel 100,000 Watts. The Flamethrower. XWCL. World Crime League Radio. And you're a damn lectroid. Son of a bitch, Dave. Man, I'm gonna have to kick some ass here. Hey, be my guest. Hey, hey guys. Luckily, uh, I happen to have a copy of your new hit single. Let's give it a listen. What do you say? Oh, let's hear some music, baby. That Pinky, oh, man, he's always been my favorite. Ain't that right, Pinky? Yeah, you can say that, man. You can say all you want, as long as it's good. That's a that's a rocker, all right. I know you guys cut this track with Luke Short Jr. and the Tumbleweed Boys, and you know without Buckaroo because he's been so crazy busy after all the War of the Worlds in St. Peter's Square at the Vatican, when our planet came within a heartbeat of being wiped off the map by the Electroid mothership that's still out there somewhere, very scarily, highly volatile situation. And we're not out of the woods yet, but at least Buckaroo's on the case since he and. Empress John M. Dahl got down and dirty on Planet 10. Yo, Reno, why don't you tell them about your new book, baby? Oh, yeah, yeah, be sure to get the details in my new book, 
Buckaroo Banzai Meets the World Crime League, published by Dark Horse, coming to you in July. The Reno Kid, everybody. Hardest working man in show business. Maybe working a little too hard. I pay my way all day. I'm here for you, brother. Pinky Carruthers here. You better The main Buckaroo Bonsai episode was written by Dave Baker and edited by Andrew. It featured Dan Berger as our guest. Andrew and Dave Meet Pinky Carruthers and the Reno Kid was written by Earl Mac Rausch and edited by Andrew Price. It featured Andrew, Dave, Pepe Serna as the Reno Kid, and Billy Vera as Pinky Carruthers. Lectroids Better Run by Luke Short Jr. and the Tumbleweed Boys featuring Pinky Carruthers and the Reno Kid was actually written and performed by Andrew Price. Special thanks to Pepe Serna, Billy Vera, W.D. Richter, and Earl Mac Rausch. And a very special thanks to Dan Berger for helping make all this happen. And remember, wherever you go, there you are. I'm